Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. Hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media, nor a middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I am an associate clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Drs. Cindy Peterson and Kim Humphreys. But before we get to the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes reviews really help others find out about chiropractic science. So, if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. Here's a review from Lil Cairo from the UK who says, Great for keeping your knowledge up to date. I think this is a fantastic series and is really well presented. It's a perfect length if you are driving, and it's a great way to keep up to date with all the latest research. It's great to hear direct from the people out there doing all the hard work. Highly recommended. Well, Thanks, Lil Cairo, for your review, and I look forward to sharing your iTunes review in a future podcast. Please consider making a contribution to Chiropractic Science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our website either by making a donation or by purchasing the evidence-based patient education slides presentation at chiropracticscience.com. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on with the interview with Dr. Cindy Peterson and Kim Humphreys. Cynthia Peterson, RNDC DACBAR, Master's in Medical Education, has worked as a chiropractic radiologist, researcher, and educator in four countries. She retired from her positions as professor and researcher, radiology department, orthopedic university hospital, uh, Balcrest, and professor, chiropractic medicine program, University of Zurich, in 2017. She has published numerous research studies in many journals, including Spine, European Spine Journal, American Journal of Rankinology, JMPT Skeletal Radiology. She is currently a visiting professor for the chiropractic department in the Faculty of Health at the University of Johannesburg, South Africa, and is a quality assurance consultant for the European Council on Chiropractic Education. Barry Kim Humphreys. B.S. D.C. Ph.D. is Professor Emeritus, Faculty of Medicine, University of Zurich. He retired in July 2017 after nine years as the first professor for chiropractic medicine in Switzerland. During this time, Professor Humphreys was responsible for the development and accreditations of the chiropractic education program, research portfolio, and teaching clinic within the university, medical faculty, and teaching hospital. Professor Humphreys is a graduate of the University of British Columbia, Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College, and the University of Southampton. He has been academic dean, Anglo-European College of Chiropractic, dean of graduate education and research, EMCC, and professor of chiropractic medicine, University of Zurich. He has been active in research, including chiropractic clinical outcome studies for back and neck pain, functional MRI studies, of chronic pain patients and back pain in various gravitational environments. Doctors Peterson and Humphreys, thanks so much for coming on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, absolutely. I've wanted to have you both on the podcast for 
some period of time, so I'm really excited to have you both on. Can you tell us how you became interested in becoming chiropractors? Well, I'll go first. Um, my father suffered from quite severe recurring episodes of chronic low back pain every year. Had about one to three episodes. And he eventually went to a chiropractor who helped him immensely and enabled him to go back to work quickly uh, with only a few treatments. And in only a few days, he was back at work. Uh, I had a few amazing experiences myself with chiropractic treatment for um, acute neck pain and lower thoracic pain. And when I was a student at UBC, um, I had a chiropractor, Dr. Doug Alderson, and he suggested that I should become a chiropractor. So I went and observed him treating patients on Saturday morning, and it was really a great experience. I really enjoyed it. So after UBC, I applied and and uh, started studying chiropractic at CMTC in Toronto. Well, I'm next. Um, originally, I trained as a registered nurse and worked primarily in an intensive care unit in a large hospital in Portland, Oregon. And I have to admit that was excellent uh, clinical experience. But after a few years, I realized that many of the patients in the ICU were there because of their not-so-good lifestyle choices. And I wanted to do something where I might be able to prevent some of these patients ending up in intensive care. I had also been a chiropractic patient for migraine headaches, and that had helped me tremendously. And so because there was a chiropractic college in Portland, Oregon, Western States, now University of Western States, it was easy to, uh, to attend. And I worked 50% as a registered nurse while I was a full-time chiropractic student. The ICU experience really helped me a lot because I saw every single pathology in the ICU that we were studying in the textbooks in chiropractic college. And I was very comfortable with things like pathological reflexes and, and neurological cases. I did not want to be a medical doctor because I saw the horrendous work schedules they had, and I didn't think those were very healthy. So um, chiropractic was my choice. Uh, I graduated in 1984, um, and then I did not go into a treating practice because I fell in love with radiology as a student, and I went directly into the postgraduate radiology residency program and finished that and obtained my DACBAR qualification in uh, 1988. That's great. So did either of you spend uh, much time in chiropractic practice before you got involved in research? Uh, yes, I did. Um, after graduation, I practiced uh, five and a half years in British Columbia, I had my own practice. Um, and then I went to uh, England. I went to move to join the Anglo-European College of Chiropractic in England to teach at that college. But I still practiced a few hours in the morning at AACC in what they called faculty practice. And then when I became a professor at the University of Zurich, my contract actually stated I must practice two half days per week in the hospital. And I really enjoyed doing this. Um, I did it for nine and a half years in a multidisciplinary environment. And I was, you know, it was wonderful because I was considered a valued uh, team member. And I had access to every clinical test and examination and referrals, everything I wanted to really um, practice, I think, in a full way as a chiropractor. So that was uh, just an amazing, a kind of the crowning for my, my whole um, chiropractic uh, career. That's amazing, especially that they required you to practice. I love that. What a, what a fantastic opportunity. 
Dr. Peterson, how about yourself? Yeah, yeah. Yes, well, I had um, part-time radiology consulting practices in Oregon and England and actually throughout Europe um, and also in Switzerland. But I never um, was a treating chiropractor because when I graduated from Western States Chiropractic College, at that time there were chiropractors on almost every corner in Portland, Oregon, and I could make a lot more money as a registered nurse. And so um, that was another factor toward uh, going into the radiology residency, besides the fact that I, I really loved radiology. Gotcha. So what was it that got you both interested in research? Um, during my studies at UBC and CMCC, I was really always interested in research. Um, I really wanted to learn how to do research and to be involved in the research environment. So after practicing in BC, I decided that's when I decided I wanted to do more um, get involved more in teaching and research and um, carve out an academic career. So that's what motiv motivated me to get started. And I took on a, started a, a, as a faculty member at the AECC in England. For me, um, when I was a radiology resident, part of that had a, a research requirement. And so um, I started doing some smaller studies at uh, Western States Chiropractic College, and I even was privileged enough to do one with Dr. David Cassidy back in the 1980s on lateral bending. Um, and I learned quite a lot from those experiences and really enjoyed it. And then when I moved to England to be uh, head of the radiology department at the Anglo-European College of Chiropractic, I found out that every faculty member was required to supervise the student research projects, and every student was required to do a full research project before graduation at that time. So that was new to me, and we would have five to six students per year that we'd be supervising, and Professor Jennifer Bolton was in charge of these student projects at the time, and I really learned a great deal about research from her. She was an excellent mentor, and we subsequently published several papers together. After that, um, when I was working at CMCC, I did a few publications, but I found it very challenging to do research in North America in isolated chiropractic colleges because the conditions and the resources were just not there. And so it was very frustrating. So moving to Switzerland was an amazing opportunity. And going there, I knew that research publication was critical and essential. It was do or die. You don't stay in a medical faculty if you're not publishing. So it was thrilling, but it was intimidating. But we had more resources than we could possibly imagine, everything at our fingertips. And the collaborations within the hospital were easily available, and they welcomed us with open arms. So that was sort of a fantasy, chiropractic research fantasy land there for those nine years. Cool. Well, I definitely want to get into your experience in Zurich. Uh, you've both published a tremendous amount of articles in top journals such as Spine, Boston, uh, BMC Musculoskeletal Disorders, JMPT, and, and many others. And today we'll discuss a few of these, but uh, before we get into these articles, I, I do want to get more about your experience in Zurich uh, because it sounds like such an amazing place to be and you've both contributed so much from there. Uh, can you tell us what uh, Zurich was like um, compared to maybe the rest of the world? Uh, 
we've heard a little bit about your experience, but I'm, I'm certainly curious, and, and I know other chiropractors around the world are going to be very curious to hear about your experience in Zurich. Well, I can start by telling you how we actually got the appointments in Zurich in the first place, um, and because we need to give credit where credit is due, and it, it actually all started back in the 1980s at Western States Chiropractic College, where Dr. Daniel Muleman was a student of mine. He was in the first cohort of Swiss students to attend that college, and we became friends over time. And the friendship lasted years with his family visiting us in England, and we visited them in Switzerland. And he was aware, when we had moved from England back to North America, he was aware that we were not integrating very well. We didn't try, I have to admit, we would admit we didn't try to reintegrate into the culture. And we weren't very happy. And as I said before, it was also very hard to do research there and, and frustrating due to the lack of resources. I also couldn't get my radiology residents even into hospital radiology departments like I could in Europe. So one day, without another job, I resigned from my position. And a week later, Kim also resigned. And I decided to just send an email to Daniel Muleman, just sharing the fact that we had resigned. And I don't think it was 24 hours later, he phoned and asked if we would come to Switzerland and... Um, for Kim to take up the position as head of the new chiropractic medicine program. They've been looking for two years for somebody to head up this new program and found uh, nobody willing to do it. All the, um, there are very few that could because they wanted a German-speaking person, of course. And after two years, they finally gave up and said, well, we'll have to go with English-speaking. So that's how they contacted us, and that's how we ended up in Switzerland. So I think Kim will tell you more about Zurich and the program. Um, yes, uh, the law for the Swiss medical law in 2007, there was a revision to it. Um, but I must say that what happened in Switzerland and how chiropractic became part of the medical faculty of the university began many, many, many years earlier. And the pioneers of the Swiss Chiropractic Association worked long and hard, as well as a patient organization, to try and get chiropractic not only within the insurance, paid for by insurances, but also into a university and preferably a medical faculty. So it started a long time ago. And that led eventually to this Swiss medical law revision, where chiropractic became one of the five medical professions. So along with human medicine, dental medicine, veterinary medicine, and pharmacological medicine, there was included chiropractic medicine. And this new law required a chiropractic program within a medical faculty in a Swiss university, and it also required a professor, a professorship to lead the program. So the first cohort started in September 2008, and uh, so that's when it all began for us. Terrific. So how, how did the program uh, develop over time and, and what specifically uh, were your connections like? What's the scope of practice in Switzerland? I'm just curious about uh, some of these other aspects of chiropractic in Switzerland. Okay. So we were integrated into the regular medical faculty and medical curriculum 
Um, by the way, they do not use the term medical school. They use the term medical faculty as the medical school. So our students were um, considered medical students with the um, pathway towards being chiropractic medical graduates. Our students, therefore, had to pass the entrance exam at at least the same level as their human medicine, um, the other human medicine applicants. And typically, one in five applicants were successful and accepted. We only had 20 available places out of the 250 uh, medical school place, medical uh, program placements. And therefore, our students were really the cream of the crop. And not only academically, but they were wonderful, well-rounded individuals. We really enjoyed being with our students and teaching the students. And our, our students were required to do more than the human medicine students. And that's because they had to take all of the medical courses in the four years, plus chiropractic courses along with it. And this included observations in hospital, ambulatory medical, and chiropractic clinics. And our home was within the university, university hospital at Balgris, perfect home for us. It was a musculoskeletal teaching hospital and a university teaching hospital. So this really was the appropriate place to be. This is where the patients were, and this is where the experts were in the facilities. Um, I'll say a couple of things about the curriculum. It was a two-cycle curriculum. So first, they do three years, a Bachelor of Medicine with a focus on chiropractic. After that, they do a three-year Master of Chiropractic Medicine, and this uh, contains some uh, medical courses still in year four. They have to do a master's research thesis, and seven, uh, several of these have been published in various chiropractic and radiology journals. Year six is the internship. The students are called under assistants, similar to the medical uh, model, um, so they're not called interns. And the cohort of students in the sixth year, they were divided into two groups. So one group would do five months rotations in orthopedics, rheumatology, neurology, radiology, and internal medicine. And the other um, part of the cohort would do six months in the chiropractic teaching clinic, which was also right in the hospital within the orthopedic part. So in six months, under supervised clinical practice, they have to um, have seen a minimum of 80 eight zero new patients. They had to have a minimum of 800 patient treatment visits. And most of these patients, about 50% of the patients were hospital referrals, mainly from orthopedic. And they were very difficult patients. These were the ones being referred because medicine didn't know what to do and um, they wanted to see what chiropractic could do. So they referred to us. Wow, that's uh, totally amazing, and I really appreciate you going through that in some detail, and it, it gives me insight as to how some of these studies that you've done there actually took place. Uh, so I'd like to get into those studies. Uh, Can I just add one thing, sorry, before you do? Yeah, um, please. What Kim said was, was absolutely excellent, but what is also important to know is that in Switzerland, 
every chiropractor is required to do a postgraduate program, a residency program, and it's two and a half years full time, including hospital rotations. And it is fully accredited by the Swiss accrediting, accrediting agency, the same agency that accredits all of the resident, residency programs in medicine. So they get paid during the residency, but they um, have to work uh, under supervision and take another exam, the postgraduate exam, before they can be independent chiropractors. So it's really, in total, about an eight-and-a-half-year program before they can go out and have their own practice. Wow, that's pretty intense. It is, but they like it. And, and the postgraduate program had been in, has been in existence for decades. It was only accredited, um, I think, because I was in charge of the postgraduate program when we first arrived in Zurich. And it was accredited, I believe, in 2010. Um, prior to that, it wasn't, but they still had to do the program for several decades. And in that program, they had medical doctors teaching on the program. So again, that broke down barriers over the years. Very good. Let's get into uh, some of the papers that you've uh, and, uh, the first one is called uh, Symptomatic Magnetic Resonance Imaging Confirmed Lumbar Disc Herniation Patients, a Comparative Effectiveness, Prospective Observational Study of Two Age and Sex Match Cohorts, Treated with either high-velocity, low-amplitude spinal manipulation therapy or image-guided lumbar nerve root injections. And I think I have the idea of how this developed based upon what Dr. Humphreys uh, said with the collaboration between orthopedics and chiropractic. But uh, can you tell us how, how this research got started and, and what you found? Um, I wanted to quickly introduce uh, really the background to the outcome studies, and that was in JMPT in 2008, Nick Bogduck wrote an editorial that said, basically, if chiropractic wants to be considered a uh, competent and um, um, a true profession, then it needs to answer three patient-centered research questions. One is, what proportion of patients improve with chiropractic treatment? In what ways do patients improve? And finally, for how long do patients remain improved? And because we had to get research up and going from nothing, we decided this, these were the three statements we needed to take on board. These were our three questions, and so that's how the outcome studies uh, were, were formulated. Right, and so we started creating, um, which turned out to be a really large database of outcomes for various regions of the body, particularly the spine. But the idea for the comparative effectiveness study um, came to me one day when I was reading two different articles in the New England Journal of Medicine. And they were saying comparative effectiveness studies were probably better than RCTs in many ways because they do not have such strict inclusion-exclusion criteria and therefore better represent patients seen in regular clinical practices. And these two papers further mention that many institutions already have outcomes databases that could and should be used for such studies. And they gave some um, instruction on how to do that. And a light bulb went on in my head, and I said, we can do that. And the reason we could do that is because I was in charge of starting the chiropractic um, outcomes database. And together with Kim, we uh, devised the outcome measures. 
And I was also hired to work in the radiology department at the hospital to head up a new project that they had, and they had a big grant for it um, to create outcomes database for the various imaging-guided injections that they routinely did every single day. And because of that, we used some of the same outcome measures since I was in charge of both projects. And so we also had some of the same time frames for data collection. And so I went to my uh, colleagues in radiology, Professor Jörg Hodler and Professor Christian Fehrman, who are well known in musculoskeletal radiology. I knew their names from their research papers for years and used their papers teaching my students in North America. And um, not ever dreaming I'd ever meet them, let alone work with them. And I presented the idea to them to do this comparative effectiveness, use the radiology database and the chiropractic database. And for this one was for lumbar disc herniation patients. And they were thrilled. They said, go ahead. So that's the background on how it got started. I'd like to say even though, as you probably know from looking at the paper and the abstract, um, there was no significant difference between the two groups in terms of outcomes. I think that was a positive thing for chiropractic because spinal manipulative therapy is somewhat controversial, at least I think in North America, for patients with disc herniations. And some colleges even teach their students that they shouldn't be manipulating these patients. Two of the authors, co-authors on the study, um, Seraphine Lehman and Christoph Schmidt, um, together with the senior chiropractor in the practice, Dr. Bernard Onglin, they told me they were specifically taught not to do this, and yet they moved back to Switzerland and they were adjusting these patients all the time. And they said, and we get great results. And I said to them, yes, all chiropractors say that. I said, prove it. And so I told the youngest chiropractor at the time, Dr. Seraphine Lehman, who was then in the postgraduate program, I said, you write up the ethics proposal. If it gets accepted by the university, that will count as your postgraduate research requirement. And he did, and that's how it all started. So um, this, the cohort size was not as large as we would have liked because we needed to age and sex match them. So we had 102 patients, so 51 in each group. And we only had one month outcome data comparing your root injections with SMT because that was the time frame for radiology. That was the longest outcome time frame for this particular database. Certainly in chiropractic, we had much longer outcome time frames, but we could only do one month. And so 76.5% of the spinal manipulative therapy patients improved. And by improvement, we use the patient's global impression of change scale. So it's very easy for the patient to complete. It just asks them simply, since beginning treatment, how would you describe the change, if any, in your activity limitations, symptoms, emotions, and overall quality of life related to your painful condition? And there are seven options for answers, ranging from much better to much worse. And they just have to circle one. And we only accepted much better and better as clinically relevant improvement. Slightly better, we did not consider that as improved. So 76.5% of the manipulation patients were improved, and 62.7% of the nerve root injection group was improved at one month.
but that did not reach statistical significance. Probably uh, because of sample size, but still it's pretty good for both. And it was also less expensive to be treated with SMT compared to nerve root injections. So that's another positive thing for chiropractic. One fact that stood out to me, yeah, 53% of chronic patients in this cohort uh, reported improvement, which is, you know, by definition chronic, uh, it seems like things don't seem to work well. And uh, so that's, uh, that's amazing to me. Uh, exactly. That, very good point. And in the paper that we published just looking at outcomes from spinal manipulative therapy for lumbar disc herniation patients, we actually collected outcomes up to the one-year time point. Now, this was not comparing it with nerve root blocks. It was just outcomes from SMT. And that was even more exciting because um, at three months, 82% of chronic patients were improved. And at one year, 89.2% were improved. These are the chronics. I mean, I couldn't believe it when I was doing the statistics on those. Now, that's at one particular practice. And they have a special way of doing the treatment. It's, it is high-velocity, low-amplitude SMT. And if anybody's interested, they can look that paper up on PubMed. Very good. Very good. Well, let's talk about uh, the next paper, image-guided uh, issues with cervical disc herniation. Uh, and it also compared uh, spinal manipulative therapy um, to nerve root injections for cervical disc herniations. I wonder if you could tell us uh, about that study. Yes, exactly. It is the same protocol. It's a comparative effectiveness study. Again, not a randomized clinical trial. And um, this one excited me even more, probably because the results were more positive for chiropractic, but also because particularly um, spinal manipulation for cervical disc herniation patients is, I think, in many corners of the profession, controversial. But you know, at the same practice that uh, we did the lumbar studies on, they uh, certainly do it on regularly. So this time we had a similar cohort size, 104 patients um, in total. So half were receiving nerve root injections and half were receiving manipulation. And these were to the level of disc herniation. So they were age and sex matched again used the same outcome measures, the pain scale, the numerical rating scale for pain, and the patient global impression of change. But the thing that's different about this one is we now have three-month outcome data instead of just one-month outcome data. And that really showed in our uh, actual results. So clinically relevant improvement was reported in 86.5% of the manipulation patients and 49% of the nerve root block patients. And that was highly statistically significant. P was 0.0001. However, more of the nerve root injection patients were in the subacute slash chronic category. 77% of those patients were um, beyond the acute phase, compared to only 46% in the manipulation group. But when we looked specifically at patients in the subacute chronic category between the two treatments, it was still statistically significant. So only 37.5% of the nerve root injection patients were improved compared to 783 of the manipulation patients. So 
I think that says a lot and supports using SMT in patients with cervical disc herniation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm curious to know then if these results have somehow changed the way that uh, patients are dealt with uh, in the orthopedic department at the university hospital and within the, the chiropractic uh, facility as well. Well, I don't know specifically the answer to that question since we retired in 2017, but um, in Switzerland in general, the chiropractors are not at all afraid of adjusting patients with disc herniations, and uh, Kim can probably talk more about this, but the number of patients referred from the orthopedic department in the hospital to our teaching clinic certainly has done nothing but grow while we were there. Um, in my experience working in four different countries in chiropractic education, as I alluded to before, students are often taught they should not adjust these patients. And I think um, this is these studies do not support that approach. I think their litigation fear is what stops them. Kim, did you want to add to that? Um, yes. The, in Switzerland, chiropractors are considered primary spine care providers. They're part of the spine care team. So they do have access to all of the tools and all of the um, tests and other things that are necessary for making a proper diagnosis and making proper referrals. Um, but in the hospital, we had probably about 50% referral of uh, patients to our teaching clinic <clears throat> and um, as was mentioned these are these were very difficult patients they had uh, uh, comorbidities and they had uh, psychosocial aspects as well as their pain and disability problems and these patients were treated by sixth year um, under assistance so these were not chiropractors these were to be chiropractors, of course, under supervision, and still uh, remarkable results um, were uh, occurred. And another interesting point is sometimes we were uh, criticized for just trying to medicalize our students and medicalize chiropractic. But the fact is the patients that came to us were not referred for more medical care or more prescriptions or more injections or whatever. They were referred for chiropractic treatment, and that's what they got. So um, it, we weren't medicalizing them at all. In fact, <clears throat> our colleagues in the hospital, they kept expanding the, the boundaries of the types of patients they used to send to us because our under-assistants would get great results, and so they'd send something a little bit more difficult, a little bit... Uh, uh, more exotic, and uh, and the so in, instead of restricting what we treated, they actually expanded it. Plus, we had some of the chiefs of different departments come in as patients themselves, and they experienced miraculous results. And they said, "You guys are magic. What is it?" <laughs> so um, this, this was, you know, being within being within this setting we can really show what chiropractic can do. And uh, that was an amazing experience for, for us. Yeah, that's phenomenal. And uh, I think it gets back to 
what Dr. Peterson was saying uh, a few minutes back that the young doctor who mentioned they got great results <laughs> uh, with these patients, it's a, it's a testament to that and, and it's something that I've encouraged all chiropractors that I get involved with to share the results, to, to publish data and uh, so we need a lot more of this. So, so thanks for doing this. Uh, I'd like to talk next about another study which involves neck pain uh, with and without dizziness undergoing chiropractic treatment. It was a prospective cohort study with six-month follow-up. I wonder if you could share with us uh, the information that you have about that study. Okay. Um, I have been interested in uh, cervicogenic dizziness or dizziness of suspected cervical origin and whiplash injuries for quite a while. Um, and back at this time, uh, final manipulative treatment for these types of conditions was a little bit controversial, but also the term itself, cervicogenic dizziness, was controversial. Um, now it's not quite as controversial, but uh, there still is uh, pockets of resistance here and there. And um, we understand that um, cervicogenic dizziness, it can arise from mechanical, degenerative, inflammatory, or traumatic problems that affect various structures of the neck. And with this dysfunctional mechanoreceptors in the joints, uh, deep cervical tissues and neck muscles, it's thought that this dizziness affects the cervical somatosensory system, and there's a mismatch of this sensory information from proprioceptors, vestibular, and ocular sensory input. So that's what is thought to create the dizziness. So our study was the aims were to compare neck pain versus um, neck pain uh, with dizziness and no trauma, although we did have some trauma patients, we excluded uh, ones that had whiplash, any type of whiplash trauma. But a, a few ones we did get in that had, say, falls or whatever. Uh, we also wanted to compare males versus female patient outcomes because it's been reported that females suffer a lot more from neck pain as well as um, cervicogenic dizziness. There's a few uh, studies out that say that they study uh, that they suffer more than uh, males. Now the interesting thing is the study it was all chronic patients. So these patients uh, were chronic, and also they could not have had any type of um, treatment, manual therapy, or chiropractic therapy in the last three months. So it was a prospective cohort study, and it had a six-month follow-up. Now, these patients were all recruited from chiropractic practices. So they weren't from our teaching clinic. They are actually from practices throughout Switzerland. And we had 81 chiropractors that participated in this. And the outcome measures we had to measure pain, we used the numerical rating scale. To We also had current arm pain. We decided to look at that because that was an interesting thing that started to come up with some of our observations. And then we looked at disability in terms of activities of daily living, social activities, anxiety, depression, work and fear avoidance, pain locus of control. And then these were all measured with the Bournemouth questionnaire and then also the total, total score for the questionnaire. And we looked at improvement using the PGIC, which was used in the other studies that Cindy mentioned. And this allowed us to divide patients into those that improved and those that didn't. 
So overall, for whatever variables patients feel is important, that's what the PGIC is. It doesn't matter whatever the patient feels is a problem for them with their pain problem. They had to report using the PGIC whether they felt they improved or not. So we had 405 patients from 81 chiropractors. 75% of the patients with dizziness were female. That was 177. And 58% of the patients were female where they had um, neck pain but without dizziness. So that was 228 patients, neck pain without dizziness. Um, the neck pain patients with dizziness, they showed significantly higher baseline scores for current pain, uh, arm pain if it was present, the disability, anxiety, depression, work and fear avoidance, pain locus of control. Um, and for improvement, we found that after one month, we looked at the, their outcomes of one month, three months, and six months. After one month, we found that those with dizziness, neck pain and dizziness, 72% reported being improved. And without dizziness, so um, just, just neck pain, 73% uh, reported being, um, being improved. And if you look at uh, from one month, three months, six months, with dizziness, it was a constant improvement. So really, the big, huge improvement occurred at three months with 81% reporting being improved and at six months, 80%. Um, so both those with dizziness and neck pain as well as those with only neck pain, they both significantly improved. So what did we learn? We learned that neck pain patients with dizziness reported higher pain and disability at baseline. We also uh, learned that females are more likely to report neck pain with dizziness and that both groups responded well to treatment. But interestingly, it's of those that did not improve, the small number of those that did not improve, and it was in arm pain, depression, work and fear avoidance. So it's very important to keep an eye on these factors, and that means it's important to be measuring these factors, and I would highly recommend using the Bournemouth questionnaire, seven questions, biopsychosocial questions, very important, and particularly depression in females, to keep an eye on that. So neck pain with dizziness, arm pain, and being female are also not risk factors for, for poor treatment response. So that's what we for, uh, learned from the study. and. Um, I think that's all good news, that it doesn't matter if you have this type of dizziness along with your neck pain or that you're female, you're just as likely as others to improve with chiropractic care. Yeah, great, great summary. And, you know, one thing, it kind of brings me back to the previous two papers with the disc herniations that I, I think there's a thought somewhere, I don't know if it's... Uh, within the schools at one point in time or just chiropractors in practice, but I get the sense, and I may be wrong about this, but I get the sense that some people think dizziness is a contraindication to chiropractic care when, in fact, clinical practice and, and your study in particular would indicate the opposite, that uh, it seems to be an indication. 
Yeah, so I think it is an indication. And I was lucky enough to work um, uh, to establish a collaboration with a specialist in vestibular disorders, a neurologist at the university hospital. And he asked me to come work with him and, and to um, treat patients together. And he expanded even that. He says, oh, of course, cervicogenic dizziness manipulation, that's what should be used. But he even started saying, you know, patients that have vestibular dizziness, that unless they get treated for their neck problems, they won't completely improve. Now, this was a huge step forward. And I thought, wow, that's wonderful. And there was a few neurologists working with them, and they said, yes, they need to be treated by uh, chiropractors with manual uh, therapy or SMT because that's what will really help them completely improve. And I think that that beautifully shows how important it is to be within the system instead of out of the system because you have the opportunity to work together with other specialists and that you can see what each other does. And it's all about the patient. It's all about what's best for the patient, not what's best for the individual practitioner or the individual specialty. We all should be looking toward working to help the patient. That's just my opinion. Absolutely, and, and such a great point. I mean, how could they possibly know what we, we do if they don't see it or they don't have any exposure? Exactly. So, yeah. Amazing. Okay, so let's uh, talk about uh, one last paper here, and this is an observational study on trajectories and outcomes of chronic low back pain. And uh, it somehow gets back to the, the first paper we talked about, which included uh, improvement in the chronic low back pain patients. But uh, this was a, a different study, a more recent study. So could you tell us about that study? Okay, so this was a similar type of study. But the difference, one of the main differences, was the patients were referred to our under-assistants. So they were treated by our under-assistants. They weren't treated by chiropractors in general practice. Um, in Switzerland, of course, we had that uh, lovely opportunity. We were part of the Joint University Spine Center. Um, so there's multiple disciplines, orthopedics, neurosurgery, neurology, chiropractic medicine, rheumatology, anesthesiology, and radiology. So we're all closely working together, and the focus is on improving patient care. And that's why we were part, why we were accepted as part of the care team, is because we focused on the patient. They saw that. That's what they're focused on. We're not focused on proving that chiropractic works. We're focusing on how to improve patient care. So that's uh, the background to that. Um, so we had uh, referrals. So we had 67 participants, 31 were males, and 46 had suffered uh, low back pain for greater than one year. So most of them were very chronic, and the rest were greater than three months. So all of them were chronic and quite difficult, comorbidities and other biopsychosocial problems along with it. So at baseline, their pain intensity, which we measured with uh, the numerical rating scale, was 5.43. Um, and uh, it was reduced at, um, but not before six months, but eventually it was reduced to 3.15. 
So the pain decreased uh, significantly. We found with the Bournemouth questionnaire on all of the biopsychosocial variables that um, at start it was rated as 39.8, and that would have been out of a total score of 70. Um, but still, that's a very high rating. Normally, you would see back pain patients, even um, chronic patients, probably down in the 20s. And at 12 months, there was a significant decrease um, to 29 for the total Bournemouth questionnaire score. But there was also found after one month a significant decrease in the Bournemouth questionnaire um, uh, scores. So for improvement, we used the patient's global impression of change, and we found after one week, 23% reported being improved. At one month, there was 47% that uh, stated they were um, improved, and then it remained more or less stable. So we had 50 per, uh, 56% at three and six months and 44% at 12 months. Now, interestingly, the no median number of treatments given was eight, but there were three patients that had more than 20. And what we found, a significant thing, which we found was pain was not really the most important thing for most patients, but it was biopsychosocial aspects that were more important to them and disability. So pain should be considered something that we do measure, but biopsychosocial is more important. And that's what, these, uh, what we found in these patients reported. So it's important, again, to assess. We need to assess biopsychosocial factors in practice, and that means using instruments such as the Bournemouth questionnaire. It's only seven questions, easy to give to patients and for them to, to respond and to score it. We'll use it for managing our patients. So chiropractic treatment, it's a, it's a valuable conservative treatment. It shows how we can be involved as a team player within the spine team, even for very difficult chronic low back pain patients. And this further cements us as spine care experts within the multidisciplinary team within the university hospital setting. Fantastic. Yeah, and it uh, it makes me think about the newest paper by Sidney Rubenstein, the systematic review of uh, SMT and chronic low back pain, and this just further provides uh, more evidence for that, and uh, fantastic. Uh, and I think the three points that you made uh, from Dr. Bogdu for started, the reason why you started these, I think you've accomplished that very well, and Wow, what a, what a great series of papers, and I know you've published so many more, and we've just talked about four of them, but thanks for going through that. Uh, it was tremendous. Uh, I would like to ask both of you, uh, before we finish today, one important thing that I feel is part of the podcast is I like to try to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. So I'll ask both of you, could you offer any advice to these aspiring chiropractors or students who, who may wish to become scientists in the future? Okay, I'll start. Um, well, I would say a few things. 
I think they should routinely collect outcomes on all their patients because not only is it good feedback for the patient and the practice, but you never know when you're going to be able to use it in the future for some kind of research study. And these can be as simple as the NRS pain scale and the patient's global impression of change. But as Kim said, the Bournemouth questionnaire is also excellent and short and easy to do. And these can be done online by the patient. I also would suggest to some of them to do a PhD and explore all options. And by that, I mean, do not be afraid to move away from your home country. That was the smartest thing I ever did, I think. Well, there are many smart and stupid things I did, but one of the smartest was to move to England um, when I was a young chiropractor, and I'd never been there before and knew nobody. And that's really started my um, research career, and in other ways, it really opened your eyes, too. So um, I was so happy to find out recently that one of my former students from Canada who went on to get his PhD, is now going to be part of the research team at Balgrist Hospital in Zurich. That's really exciting when a former student is doing something like that. So don't be afraid to move. Don't be afraid to get postgraduate credentials in research. And um, please collect outcome measures on your patients. That's my input. Yes, I totally agree. And for myself, I had to move from Canada to England to be able to do a PhD because um, at that time, part-time PhD programs were possible so I could still work and do a PhD. Of course, it takes you longer, but it was not possible at that time in Canada. So I had to move to England, which uh, was great, <laughs> great uh, move um, uh, for many different uh, personal and as well as professional reasons. So definitely a PhD. I think now there are a number of very good chiropractic researchers that are established within universities. Um, so I would I would seek them out. I would uh, discuss things with them. I would maybe come up with research questions or a line of research that you wanted to be involved in, possibly even see if there's uh, funding or a, a possibility of working with them. Um, and I think uh, looking for questions that are really important for patient care reflected, um, referring to chiropractic treatment. So focus on the patient, what are the questions we need answers to, and I think uh, that really is is a good way forward. I'm sure there are others, but I think those are probably the, the main ones at this point. Great advice, to, and thanks to both of you for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate the insight. I've wanted to know about your research for some time, and I know chiropractors around the world will, will get a lot out of this interview. So thanks for spending the time uh, and talking with me today. Again, really appreciate it, and appreciate all that you've done over the years uh, within chiropractic research. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, thank you very much. We really appreciated doing this and being able to share these experiences that we had with you and the chiropractors. And um, we wish all of you the best and continue to do your excellent work in practice. And Dr. Smith, continue to do your excellent work also. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to this episode with Drs. Cindy Peterson and Kim Humphreys. Please share these episodes with your colleagues and your chiropractic associations, as well as on social media, so we can get chiropractic science out to the masses. Sharing the research with the public will promote chiropractic to those who need it, as well as those who can affect public policy. Stay tuned. I'll be back soon with more great chiropractic science episodes.